Welcome to the Ridley College podcast. Here you'll find expert content from past Ridley events, including our public lectures, a series of scholarly lectures in biblical studies and Christian thought. Tune in to hear from leading voices on the New Testament, children's and youth ministry, evangelicalism, Anglicanism, missiology, and much more. Thank you very much for the invitation and the welcome. It's a great delight to be uh, back at Ridley and uh, speaking on such an important topic and greetings to people who've come from somewhere else. Uh, Reforming and renewing Anglicanism, a way forward. Firstly, reformation and renewal, identity. God's people have always needed reformation in renewal. In the Old Testament, the giving of the law was not enough. Every prophet called God's people to reformation and renewal of belief, life, worship, loyalty, and service. God judges his people when they reject his words and has mercy on them according to his words. So we read in 2 Chronicles, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. But a few verses later, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. So the exile occurs because God's people ignore his words. The return from the exile occurs because of God's grace prophesied in his word through Jeremiah the prophet. And indeed, God's words through the mouth of the prophets had his power to achieve that reformation and renewal from Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And God blesses those who delight in his words. From Isaiah again, these are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. In Psalm 1, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So too, in the New Testament, it's Christ's words which form, reform, and renew his church. Jesus prayed to his Father, I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. And Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, and the floods blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, 
because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Or again, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And every New Testament letter is an apostolic call for reformation and renewal of belief, life, worship, loyalty, ministry, and service. This is seen most dramatically in Paul's often misused words in 2 Corinthians. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Here, Paul calls the church at Corinth to be reconciled again to God by receiving his words. And Christ makes the same appeal in the letters to the churches in Revelation. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So throughout the Bible, we call, we find God's call on his people to repent. He calls for reformation and renewal. Throughout the Bible, God's people are called to trust and obey his words in covenants, in the law, through his prophets and wise teachers, through his son and through his apostles. When God's people fail to do so and fall into sin, judgment and trouble, God calls them to repent, to reform and to be renewed. And his words invite repentance, reformation and renewal and also enable it. One reformation motto was Sempor Reformanda, always being reformed. It's not only a reformation ideal, but also a biblical imperative. And it expresses our Anglican conviction that the Bible is indeed the ultimate rule and standard of faith. A quotation from our constitution. Archbishop Michael Ramsey wrote of the constant need for the Anglican Church to relearn the gospel and test itself by the standards of the Reformation. The full recovery of the doctrine of the Church is bound up with the return of the gospel of God. Catholicism created by the gospel finds its power in terms of the gospel alone. Neither the massive polity of the Church nor its devotional life, nor its traditions in order and worship 
can in themselves serve to define Catholicism. For all these things have their meaning in the gospel, wherein the true definition of Catholicism is found. And again, the word of God, sola fide, sola, faith by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, soli deo gloria, to God alone our glory, are Catholicism's own themes, and out of them it was born. But they are themes learnt and relearnt in humiliation, and Catholicism always stands before the church door at Wittenberg to read the truth by which she is created, by which also she is judged. It is from the word of God that we learn what is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we rightly pray for the church where it is corrupt, purge it, where it is an error, direct it, when anything is amiss, reform it. But our life and mission also call for reformation and renewal. We also need constant reformation and renewal because we have to live and serve to mission and evangelize in our contemporary world. This imperative is more demanding than ever because the rate of social and cultural change gets faster and faster and because our world is increasingly multicultural. We are increasingly multicultural not only in terms of ethnicity because of migration, but because in the Western world, there are more and more subcultures determined by age, occupation, profession, poverty, wealth, and by location. Consider the, the subcultures of a well-paid lawyer and a welfare class mother. A traditional elderly Anglican, of which I'm an example, and a street beggar an inner city trendy with a country farmer, a middle-class engineer with an indigenous person living in a remote community. Even among teenagers, and there are lots of them present from the look of the room, <laughs> there are many different subcultures. I heard of one 13-year-old who needed new trainers, that is shoes. He tried on 30 pairs, but rejected all of them because they were not the same brand as his friends. People are increasingly shaped not by their individual opinions, but the, by the subculture in which they find their identity. While our society rightly aims to be more inclusive, more tolerant, in fact, subcultures are becoming more intolerant. As I say to every ordinand I meet, you must prepare yourself to do cross-cultural ministry, and you need as much awareness of your own culture and to the ability to be culturally aware of others as any missionary going overseas. So we need to rethink our modes of thinking, relating, loving, caring, understanding and speaking. We need to rethink our structures, our styles of worship, our modes of communication, our public personas and presentations and the shape of our doctrines. I do not mean that we should abandon the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Bible, the creeds are our valuable traditions and be shaped entirely by contemporary opinion. But we should not attempt to retain patterns which well, worked well in the past, but have now lost their punch. This cultural reformation and renewal is found within the Bible itself, 
as God's people move from being nomads to living in their own land, as they cope with exile and return, and live in the context of different civilizations, the ancient Near East, the Assyrian, Assyrian the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman, and in different eras of salvation history. The need for contemporary cultural reformation and renewal is found in the continuing work of Bible translation, which requires awareness not only of language, but also, of course, of culture. Now, I want to give you a brief overview of reformation and renewal in the history of the church. And here we recognize two complementary modes of ministry. I have exaggerated the distinction to make the point. So going back to the Roman Empire, which some of us remember rather well, uh, you, we had bishops and uh, cities, dioceses and parish, what the Roman Catholics called modalities. But we also had independent grassroots focused ministries, what the Roman Catholics called sodalities. So there were bishops in the Mediterranean world, but independent grassroots focused ministries such as the Desert Fathers and increasing number of monks and nuns. In England, to focus on the Church of England, there were three bishops at the Council of Arles in 314, but also a big part of uh, life in, in England and indeed in Britain was monasteries as bases for traveling evangelists. With the arrival of Augustine 597, the establishment of dioceses and diocesan bishops and then parishes under Theodore in the 1680s. Yet at the same time, there were monasteries of monks and nuns with traveling evangelists in England and on the continent, uh, including, for example, Boniface and Frisia, uh, uh, sorry, Boniface in northern France, and notable women missionaries included Leo Griff and Eadberg. And in the 1000s, we had the arrival of the European preaching orders, for example, the Dominicans and Franciscans, traveling evangelists, often preaching outside. And the preaching orders arose in Europe because the parish system was no longer functioning adequately. Then within uh, England, we had the, in the 1500s, the Reformation from above, as it were, led by uh, the kings uh, and queens and bishops, but we also had the most significant reformation from below, often a more costly reformation led by priests and laymen and women. This included the, uh, from the king and queen and bishops, the re reformation and renewal by the translated Bible, Book of Common Prayer, the renewal of ordained ministry, the renewal of training for ordained ministry, and the renewal of dioceses and parishes. But on the downside, we had the closure of the monasteries and the removal of the preaching orders, which left a significant gap in ministry in England. Though we did have the growth of universities and university colleges and Puritan lectureships in parishes privately funded. In the 1600s, there was a growth of voluntary societies within England for growth in godliness and for the propagation of Christianity. 
These included Nicholas Ferrer's community at Little Gidding, the Society for the Reformation of Manners, 1691, the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, 1698, and the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, 1701. In the 1700s, we had the Evangelical Revival and the Methodist Movement, and the Travelling Methodists, in a way, replaced the uh, preaching orders in taking the gospel outside the parish system. In the 1800s, some active bishops were founding parishes and uh, founding diocesan theological colleges. In terms of grassroots reform, we had the reform bills passed by Parliament to reform the Church of England and Ireland, the growth of missionary societies such as the Tertian Missionary Society, the University's mission to Central Africa, and interdenominational societies such as the London Missionary Society and independent colleges. In the 1800s and 1900s, we saw the planting and growth of Anglican churches around the world, largely led and enabled by the independent voluntary missionary societies. In the 1800s, the uh, Lambeth Conference began, uh, led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, to bring together bishops of dioceses around the world though you might notice that independent grassroots focused ministries were not invited. And uh, here in our era, GAFCON, the first internationally initiated Anglican voluntary society, and most recently, Anglicans from outside England disagreeing with the Archbishop of Canterbury about the nature and limits of Anglicanism. Some observations. We need both modes of Anglicanism for Anglicanism to flourish. Dioceses and parishes provide the ministry of word and sacrament for congregations and should also ensure evangelization with each parish area. Independent ministries provide specialist ministries, innovation, and a focus on ministry beyond the diocese. Secondly, Dioceses and parishes can fail to exercise effective ministry and self become self-focused, so can independent ministries. The Reformation in England uh, strengthened dioceses and parishes. The closing of monasteries and the removal of the preaching orders left, left a significant gap, which was later filled by independent ministries, such as voluntary societies, and the Methodist traveling evangelist. Fourthly, since the Reformation, movements for reformation and renewal have not come from archbishops and bishops, but from below, from independent associations of people and voluntary societies. These have included the Evangelical Revival and the Oxford Movement. Generally, it takes about 50 years after the start of a movement that an Archbishop of Canterbury is appointed who's a product of the movement. But these appointments do not initiate the formal renewal, they merely respond to it and validate it. Fifthly, a national church with dioceses and parishes has difficulty engaging in God's global mission, as did the Christianized Roman Empire. 
Sometimes it only provides ministry for members of the country who are living elsewhere for trade. Sometimes it results in forced conversions when new territories are captured. Sixthly, the lack of awareness of the validity and significance of independent movements or voluntary societies sometimes leads Anglican bishops to be threatened by any movement which is not initiated by them or controlled by them. They think they are preserving Catholic order. However, the Roman Catholic Church itself is a wonderful mixture of episcopal authority and the authority of their independent voluntary societies, such as the Dominicans, Franciscans, Jesuits, the Order of Mercy, the Sisters of Charity, and the Josephites, who play significant roles in education and health, and whose loyalty is to their leaders as much as it is to the Bishop or Archbishop of the Diocese. Seventhly, the Church of England itself had no plan to engage in God's global mission. It was independent voluntary societies which worked to evangelize the world and which produced the worldwide Anglican communion. It is ironic that contemporary Anglicans who do not believe that people of other religions should be converted to Christ enjoy belonging to an Anglican communion produced by those conversions. In the 20th century, eighthly, Anglican churches have flourished in the two-thirds world, while in the Western world, they have shrunk. We need to praise God for the success of Anglican evangelism worldwide, even while we lament its decline in the West. Ninthly, the conversion of indigenous people and the translation of the Bible into their language gives them freedom to interpret the Bible and to critique those who converted them, as we saw at the recent Lambeth Conference. In the words of Laura Rademacher, writing of Indigenous Australians, for Christian people, the translation of the Bible placed them on a more equal footing with the missionary, as they too could be interpreters of the sacred text. Tenthly, here in Australia, while we established dioceses to cover the nation, outback ministry would not have flourished without voluntary societies, such as the Bush Brotherhoods, Church Missionary Society Missionaries, and the Bush Church Aid Society. And final of these points, the life and ministry of the Diocese of Melbourne and its parishes in enhanced by the following independent voluntary societies, Trinity College and its theological school, Ridley College, the Church Schools, the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, Anglicare, the Church Missionary Society, Bush Church Aid, the Mother's Union, the Mission to Seafarers, Hospital and University Chaplains, SEBS, CMS, uh, Church of England Men's Society, and many others. Now I want to talk about Reformation and Renewal in Melbourne, and this uh, in Melbourne, and this will be a personal account. Uh, so please forgive me. Um, I'm partly doing this because I've reached my anecdotage, uh, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, I must say, even if other people aren't, uh, but also because I thought it would be useful to provide a contemporary example of an attempt to promote Reformation and Renewal. 
I was ordained in 1970 and I'm grateful to Archbishop Woods for ordaining me, especially as the acting principal of Ridley recommended I not be ordained. <laughs> Apart from nine years in England, I have served in the Diocese of Melbourne and I'm so thankful to God for the ministry this has enabled me to do. Let me talk about my attempts at reformation and renewal under four headings. They all start with P, which I'm rather pleased with. <laughs> uh, prayer, practical ministry, the propagation of ministers, and positive engagement and politics. Prayer. I have prayed for my ministry and the ministries in which I've participated. I have prayed to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up workers for his harvest in and through the Diocese of Melbourne, for Australia and for God's global mission around the world. I have prayed, of course, for the diocese, the archbishop and bishops, the diocesan council, the synod, for individual parishes and ministries, and for the clergy. I have prayed. Next, practical ministry. In my parish ministry, I've worked to provide biblical preaching and teaching, which addresses believers and unbelievers, conveys the whole counsel of God, teaches and transforms people, and equips them to read the Bible and teach and encourage others as well. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, as gospel sacraments which proclaim Christ, his atoning death and resurrection, and our effective means of grace to his people. Prayer, which includes praise, worship, repentance, lament, and trust, and trust for God's, for people's personal needs, the life of the church, the world, and God's global gospel mission. You may think that goes without saying, but let me assure you, it does not. I tried to provide mutual pastoral care, prayer and encouragement, and particular pastoral care in special situations, with pastoral having a wider meaning than individual crisis care. I tried to provide opportunity for lay ministry and training for those ministries. I tried to encourage evangelism by the church as a body, by individuals in events and in services. And I tried to raise up gospel workers by encouraging people and challenging them to consider ordination and other ministries in Australia and overseas. And I promoted participation in God's global gospel plan by prayer, giving and going. I talked about that practical ministry because I think people need, need to see ministry uh, in order to be encouraged to take part in it. Thirdly, propagation. As I've already shown, I've prayed that God would raise up gospel workers for his harvest, including the Diocese of Melbourne. I've give, had many conversations with those who might consider trained ministry, given them opportunities for ministry, and trained them in their ministries. I've enabled them to learn of the many good possibilities for long-term ministry, including in the Diocese of Melbourne. I tried to prepare them for ministry in a mixed diocese 
and warned them again and again not to try and reduplicate St. Jude's. I've shepherded them through the ordination process and continue to support them and pray for them. It is the ministry of future clergy by which gospel ministry will grow and permeate through the diocese parish by parish. And by positive engagement with the diocese and political action. I tried to contribute to the life and ministry of the diocese, serving as a member of the liturgical committee, a parish consultant, an archdeacon on the diocesan council, on the archbishop election board on the cathedral chapter. I've tried to engage positively and generously. I'm so aware that a parishioner who says, I disapprove of what's happening in this church, I'm quoting uh, many people, <laughs> I'm not going to attend services and have stopped my giving unless you change everything. It's unlikely to achieve any positive change. And a similar attitude in clergy or laity towards the diocese is not likely to succeed either. I decided I'd put the best interpretation on the opinion and actions of others rather than the worst, because I was aware of how much I resented those who put the worst interpretations on my opinions or actions. I tried to win the middle ground in debate rather than polarizing the conversation. I tried to retain a positive attitude, even on the worst days. And having a sense of humor helped in personal relationships and in speaking of synod. <coughs> I well remember when I first joined a diocesan committee, somebody said, uh, you're an evangelical, but you've got a sense of humor. <laughs> I laughed, I thought it was quite a funny joke. My doctrine of ubiquitous sin meant that I was never surprised to find sin in the church as I'm never surprised to find sin in myself. I've always kept in mind that even the churches planted by the great St. Paul fell into deep sins in their first generation. There are characteristic Anglican sins as every denomination and church organization has its own characteristic sins. And I try to engage with faith in Christ the Lord, Saviour and Builder of his church, love for all his saints and with a firm hope in God. Politics. Among the several tickets for synod elections, the former evangelical ticket, which was largely Masonic, I'm sorry to say, had been closed down when I arrived back in 82 by David Penman uh, at St Andrew's Hall and Alan Nichols at the Mission of St James and St John. So when I came to St. Jude's in 82, I began work with Neil Bark, Tom Morgan, Ian Hall Lacey and Tony Greenwood to revive an evangelical ticket. It was known as the Carlton Club at that point. That was a joke. This later morphed into the new Cranmer Society of which I'm still a member. I worked in the diocese as well as St. Jude's and at Ridley because I wanted to promote gospel ministry in Melbourne and then from Melbourne to the world. As you've seen, my work included prayer, practice, propagation, and positive engagement in politics. All four are needed, and any one by itself will be less effective. And of course, there are many other people engaged in those activities. My aim was to be truly biblical, truly Catholic, truly reformed, truly Anglican, and, I, and truly evangelical. 
I do not regard these as mutually exclusive descriptions. Truly Catholic, truly biblical, truly reformed, truly Anglican and truly evangelical. They're not mutually exclusive descriptions. Instead, I see them as mutually interpretative and mutually enriching. And of course, as a loyal Anglican, the scriptures are my ultimate rule and standard of faith. Again, quoting from our fundamental declarations. Who was I trying to reform? Moribund evangelicals? Missionless evangelicals? Bible light evangelicals? Or evangelicals who were still living in the 1950s, or in some cases, the 1850s? I was trying to form lo reform loyal Anglicans who had not learnt the central grace-filled basics of Christianity. I was trying to reform liberals who had dispensed with creedal Christianity and Anglo-Catholics who had de-gutted the Catholic faith. People often claim that the divisions in Melbourne are over churchmanship. I think they're over theology. I have more in common with an Anglo-Catholic than with someone who has no churchmanship at all or who does not use the Bible in ministry. Next, reformation and renewal of a diocese. Political reformation and renewal needs to take account of political structures. Whereas in England and New Zealand, the general national synod is all powerful. Here in Australia, each diocese is a separate unit, though part of a federated system of the Anglican Church of Australia. In an Australian diocese like Melbourne, there are in effect three significant bodies, the bishop, in our case, the archbishop, the parishes and the synod. And there's a diagram to show you that. The bishop is elected by synod either directly or indirectly. The bishop's most significant role is that of accepting ordinands, ordaining them and appointing clergy to parishes. The synod comprises all licensed clergy and lay people elected by parishes. Parishes have the thrill of paying their clergy, having some say in appointing clergy, electing members of synod and paying an assessment to synod to fund the diocese. It seemed obvious to me that the best way to reform and renew a diocese was to provide ordinands. When they're vicars or priests in charge of parishes, they can teach and preach the gospel, to grow the gospel ministry in the parish, and elect gospel-hearted people to synod. Then the vicar and the parish members of synod will participate in setting the tone for the diocese and electing the bishop. Then the bishop, on a good day, can accept good candidates for ordained ministry, ordain and appoint them, and the process continues. Anglican dioceses in Australia can change their style and theology. So all the dioceses in Victoria, Melbourne, Ballarat, Gippsland, Bendigo and Wangaratta began as evangelical dioceses, but most have moved from that foundation. On the other hand, the Diocese of Northwest Australia, Armadale and Tasmania did not begin with much evangelical ministry, but are now recognised as more evangelical in style. 
Though the first clergy in Sydney were evangelical, the first bishop was not, though he worked well with them. Sydney is now a strongly evangelical diocese, as you may know. So change is possible. Once a bishop is elected, he or she can accept or reject ordinance or clergy appointments. So the election of a bishop is of crucial importance. Is this gin or water? It's both. <laughs> a lovely mixture. <laughs> I commend you. Some questions. Have I been disloyal to the bishop or the diocese? No, I do not regard my plan and participation as disloyal to the diocese. I thought that the diocese would be strengthened by more and more vigorous evangelical ministry. Uh, when I resigned from Ridley, Bishop Barbara Darling kindly wrote to me, thanking me for my contribution to, quote, the evangelical wing of the diocese. And I appreciated her letter. In fact, I had aimed to serve the diocese, not just a group within it. Another question, have not some clergy brought about liturgical change not provided for in our prayer books? Uh, yes, though it does seem to have been tacitly accepted by our bishops. But we learned a useful lesson from the Oxford movement. If you initiate changes which are against the law, eventually the law is changed to allow them. In the words attributed to Henry Newbolt, uh, uh, an exemplary canon of St. Paul's Cathedral, the best way to get a bad law changed is to break it. Is not contemporary evangelical Anglicanism changing worship beyond recognition? Uh, yes, it is. And I must say, I approve of some changes and deplore others. We are sometimes captive to the spirit of our age as other churchmanships are captive to the spirit of previous ages. However, I was recently reading the letters of Sidney Smith, a 19th century clergyman, well known as a public intellectual political activist and wit. He wrote, and this is meant to be funny, I have not yet discovered of what I am to die, but I rather believe I shall be burnt alive by the Puseyites. He meant the high church group, whom he didn't like. Nothing so remarkable in England as the progress of these foolish people. This is a quotation. I have no conception of what they mean, if it not be to revive every absurd ceremony and every antiquated folly, which the common sense of mankind has sent to sleep. You will find at your return a fanatical Church of England. You need to know he was even more scathing about Methodists and Evangelicals. Next, is it not the case that GAFCON in the formation of the Diocese of the Southern Cross has split the Anglican Church of Australia and created an unprecedented and indefensible situation? No, it has not split the Anglican Church of Australia. And it's not unprecedented to have two Anglican jurisdictions in the same country. In Europe, there are two Anglican jurisdictions. One is part of the Church of England and the other is part of the Episcopal Church of uh, the USA. 
There may be political objections to the formation of another Anglican jurisdiction in Australia, but there can be no theological objection in view of the situation in Europe. Next, how do you respond to the claim that splitting is a sign of Protestant weakness? I too deplore the multiplication of Christian denominations, but I do ask the person who asks that question to ponder why they have not returned to the Church of Rome. Next, uh, do you advise people to stay in the Anglican Church of Australia or leave? I encourage them to stay as long as possible and leave if they must. And I respect them. I respect those who stay and those who leave. How do you understand what is happening to Anglicanism worldwide? One interpretation of the current crisis in the Anglican Communion is a conflict uh, between those who value unity over apostolicity and who value apostolicity over unity. Or to put it another way, the conflict between those who value uni unity within the Anglican Church over Catholicity or who value Catholicity, that is, being part of the worldwide church, over unity. Finally, Jesus Christ and the reformation and renewal of the church. I love the picture of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, portrayed as the high priest tending the lampstands in the heavenly sanctuary. He is tending his churches, and he does so by speaking to them in words that the Spirit speaks to all the churches. Notice his positive affirmations, as well as his call to repent, reform, and renew. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles and have not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, but have not grown weary. But to the church at Laodicea, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I often ask individual Christians, and I often ask ministers, are you living a life of constant repentance? And we might well ask our diocese and our Anglican communion, are we living a life of constant repentance? But hopeful repentance, I love this gospel promise from Ephesians. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And I love the hope expressed in this blessing. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's a work within us, to him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And here is a prayer of trust I often pray. I trust in your son Jesus Christ as the saviour of the world and your gospel as your power for salvation for all who believe. I trust in your son Jesus Christ as the holy, loving, powerful and generous saviour, head, Lord and judge of his church. I trust you as the good, gracious and wise ruler of this world, the just judge of all people, and that you'll bring glory to yourself in the church and in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Ridley College podcast brought to you by Ridley College. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and liking our podcast. Also, be sure to check out our Ridley Chapel Sermons podcast through the link in our podcast description. This podcast is made possible through the generous donations of our alumni and supporters. We welcome your partnership with us in our mission of equipping men and women for God's mission in our rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. If you'd like to contribute to our work, you can donate via the link in the description below.